So Romans 11 is where we're at today. If you have your Bibles, you can open up at Romans chapter number 11. I've, I've been reading through it again and again and again this week, just asking God to reveal uh, the, the, the heart of Romans 11 to me. Um, and as I was doing that, I started thinking back to uh, me as a kid growing up in my grandfather's church. So I grew up in the Apostolic Faith Mission, the AFM Church, the early Pentecostal church in our country. And, and my grandfather pastored a church here in Joburg for the final years of his life. And so I was growing up in a Pentecostal church in the 80s, which if you were in a Pentecostal church in the 80s, you'll know exactly how much fun it actually was. There was a lot of teased hair going on, prophetic dances, flags were often involved. Um, you had colorful microphone covers. We don't even use those. We, why can we not? Can we bring those back? They were absolutely amazing. So if you were around in the church in the 80s, you'd know all about those colorful microphone colors. Orange was a particular favorite. Um, and, um, and I just remember growing up and loving church and uh, loving the church family from a young age. And I was thinking to those days, and I thought, you know, the, the church, the Pentecostal church, um, back in the 80s was largely built on three things. Um, the first was a genuine revelation of Jesus. Uh, the second was a powerful move of the Holy Spirit. And the third was an abundance of cook sisters, right? Was anybody around in the 80s? The abundance of cook sisters is what built the church partly uh, back in those days. And there was a whole revival built uh, on those things and community and a lot of great things. But um, there was one particular thing that I thought back to um, which was the songs that we used to sing. The songs so often just focused on who God was and what his faithfulness was and what his characteristics were, which is really what giving glory to God is all about. It's giving voice to his attributes, to who he is as a person, to his characteristics. And that's what we do when we worship. We declare the goodness of God and, and we're actually reminding ourselves and singing ourselves strong as we do that. And one of the songs that we used to sing uh, in church in those, in those days, and I was only five or six years old, but I remember the lyrics so clearly. And to this day, when I'm feeling like I uh, am in a battle or I'm facing some difficult circumstances, this is still one of the songs that I would sing. This is still one of the things that I would just come back, those lyrics would just come back to my mind, and I would sing them over and over again, even though at the time the lyrics actually confused me a little bit. Because there was a song that we sang called, He's Never Failed Me Yet. He's never failed me yet. That is the title of my message this morning, if you are taking notes. Um, he's never failed me yet. And uh, I won't sing it for you this morning, because then you'll all leave and not come back again, and some of you may lose your salvation as well. So, um, so, so I'm not going to sing it for you this morning, but the, the words go, he's never failed me yet. He's never failed me yet. The Lord Jesus Christ has never failed me yet. And there's one thing I know, that wherever I may go, the Lord Jesus Christ has never failed me yet. And just a simple song, but as we sang it growing up, I always was confused by the word yet. I was like, why is there a yet in there? Because it makes it seem as if, to my mind as a five-year-old, that, that at some point, you see, I was already reasoning theologically at that age, going, why is there a yet in this song? But like David says, I was once young and now I'm old and two things I've never seen which is the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. I was young and now I'm, I'm still young, but I'm just a little bit, I'm not as young. And, um, and you realize why the yet is there. Because there have been so many opportunities in my life up to this point for God to fail me. So many moments where I thought that he may have failed me. So many times when I began to doubt whether he still was faithful, if I'm honest this morning. And you may have been in that place but in hindsight, 
through every season, through every moment, through every single thing that I have faced to this day, he's never failed me yet. It doesn't make a lot of sense as a five-year-old because there hasn't been those many things that you have faced at that point. But at this point, I can tell you honestly that God is faithful. He is a faithful God. He is a true God. He is a loving God. And to me, this has become one of the most precious things about my relationship with Jesus. One of the most intimate things about my relationship with God is his faithfulness. When when I think about the faithfulness of God, that's the thing that just hits me every time. It's like the gospel just keeps your heart soft. So many opportunities to become cynical, so many opportunities to be hardened, but for the faithfulness of God, the kindness of God is what is our strength. Our confidence is in his faithfulness. And this just stands out to me whenever I worship and I just think, I don't think about myself when I worship anymore. I used to, I used to think about how devoted am I right now? How high are my hands up in the sky? How much am I doing to show God how much I love him? And since the gospel has just rocked my own heart and informed me of my true identity and revealed Jesus to me in a greater way, when I worship, I think about how good he is. And I realize how undeserving I am and how faithful he is in spite of all of that. The knowledge that God is not faithful to me because I am faithful to him is what's changed my life. I used to think that God would be faithful to me in as much as I was faithful to him. But what I realized is I am only faithful to him because of how faithful he has been to me. We love God because he loved us first. That's the message of the Bible. So if you're struggling to find faith in your heart, if you're struggling to find a love for God in your heart, if you're struggling to worship God, don't focus on yourself because that's not the heart of worship. That's not the heart of faithfulness. Focus on how much God loves you because that's the gospel and that's the source of all these things that we believe in and and of our entire relationship in God. So in this world where we experience so much hurt and disappointment and so many battles and so many obstacles to overcome, with the volatility and the uncertainty of it all, there's this declaration of the Bible, this message of this faithful God who fights for us and stands with us and loves us and is committed to us beyond our commitment to Him. It's a declaration that expels our fear and settles our hearts. It's the message about the faithful kindness of God and this is the God of the Bible, this is our God and that is why we are so passionate about sharing that message with our city. Because there are people that are here today that are not here today because they think that they're not good enough to be here today. There are people that are not here today because they don't know the faithfulness and the kindness of God. They think that God is simply waiting to condemn or to judge or to point out their errors. And so we have a powerful message, especially in a world like ours, as tumultuous as what it is, we have got a message of hope for this city and we are absolutely passionate about that. And if you're thinking about joining this church, I wanna encourage you to join this church. If you're thinking about serving, I'm gonna encourage you to serve because there is a mission that God has put in our hearts and we are not going to give up. No matter what we face, no matter what we fight through, there is a city out here that needs to hear the message of this faithful, kind God who will not give up in his love. And that's what we're all about as a church. And so we've been on this journey together in, in the book of Romans, which helps show us this great God who, who sets a place for us at the table, even though we are undeserving, who calls us to feast with him, 
who sends out the servant into the highways and the byways and says, bring everyone out from the streets, wherever they may have come from, bring them all because they are welcome in this place. My house will be full of people. And, uh, and even though they haven't deserved it. And so we wanna let people know that they are accepted by God, not on the basis of their goodness or their badness, but on the basis of God's everlasting and faithful grace. And, um, and so we see this come through. And Romans 11 has a lot of difficult passages to deal with, a lot of things that, that are difficult to understand without the context. But when you read it over and over again, what you begin to see is how faithful God is in spite of our faithlessness, how faithful He is. And that's why He's never failed me yet is, is, is what I wanna share with you this morning. So Romans 11, verse one to six, we're gonna read these verses and then we'll pray and we'll go into the rest of uh, the message this morning. So Romans 11 verse, verse one says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? He's speaking about Israel in this context and we'll get into it in a moment, but has God rejected Israel? Has he rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel, Lord, They have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. In other words, Israel has been unfaithful, God. Can you see how unfaithful Israel has been? But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I've kept certain people faithful. I have reserved for myself a faithful people. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, chosen by grace, And then this powerful verse, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. If it is of grace, then it is no longer, if our faithfulness is of grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Once you begin to add our own uh, laws and our own rules and our own principles to the message of grace, then you're dealing with something entirely different than grace itself. If it is of grace, let it be of grace. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get into this. Father, we thank you so much today for uh, you and your presence and your love and your faithfulness. We thank you for how you are speaking to us in this moment, God. As we, as we go through the scriptures, we thank you that what we find is not some more Christian principles or some more uh, Christian ideas or philosophies, but what we meet is you. We encounter you through your word. We encounter your, your presence. We encounter your grace. And we pray, Lord, that each of us this morning can be in, encouraged and strengthened by your faithfulness, Lord God, that we can fix our eyes on Jesus rather than on ourselves, Lord, that we can face the Christ rather than just talking about Christianity and, and that, we can, that we can accept what you have done for us wholeheartedly. Let it inform our identity this morning, God. Let it be the rock upon which we build our lives, Lord God. Let it be the platform from which we, we step out and, and do all the things that you've called us to do, Lord God. We pray that you cause us to become a people of faith, faith, and abandonment to your uh, goodness and your grace, God. So we we just thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our hearts, what you're doing in our church, and just for how your word speaks to us this morning. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen, amen. Amen. 
So um, we were also taught in Sunday school and at home and, um, and in all the different uh, places where we were raised that we should never use the F word, right? So uh, we all know about the F word and we all know that at some times when nobody's around and uh, we get cut off by a taxi that, um, that sometimes we do still say that word and that's why we need the grace of God in our lives. Uh, but I want to talk about an F word in Christianity um, that is something that often plagues people's hearts and people's minds. And uh, it may not be the F word that you're thinking about. Sorry for making you think about that word in church, but, but, um, but it's the word called failure. Failure really is like a swear word in Christianity and when it comes to our faith because we, we know how often we fall short. We know how often we miss the mark and this is something that we fear. Failure is something that all of us fear and, and, and yet it's such a common experience, right? If we're just honest for a moment, and I like to be honest whenever I'm in church, right? If we're just honest for a moment, all of us have failed, possibly this week, possibly even this morning. Uh, my kids kept me up the whole night. I hardly slept last night, and, and I, can, I can say that in certain instances this morning, um, my, my patience failed me this morning, right? Especially when you've already dressed them, and then they eat yogurt, and then you need to redress them uh, before coming to church. Those kinds of things will make you fail, right? Life will make you fail when you just take it all on, and, and so we all have this common experience of failure, and yet we hate it so deeply. I personally hate to fail. And I think there's a really important reason why I hate to fail. And that's because I, I hate what failure says about me. I hate, about, I hate how failure reflects on my weaknesses, how it reflects on my flaws. I remember as kids, um, my gran had a, a spotlight in her garden that would go on with movement, and so there was a sensor, and so when there was movement in the garden, the spotlight would go on. You may have done this as a kid as well, and, and myself and all of my cousins would literally crawl through the garden hoping that we can get all the way across the lawn without setting the spotlight off, right? Anybody ever done that? If you haven't, go home and do it tonight because it's a lot of fun. And, uh, and so we'd like crawling through the garden hoping that the spotlight wouldn't go off, and what happens when we fail, what happens in life is that the moment you take a misstep, the moment that your movements are out of line, all of a sudden it feels like there's this massive spotlight that goes on over your life. It, it exposes us. It exposes our flaws and it exposes our weaknesses. It exposes our faithlessness. It exposes what we really believe about ourselves. And it's easy for us to hit a real identity crisis in the moments of failure. What does it say about me? And it, it really cracks the image that we like to believe about ourselves. Um, like Robert Capon writes, he says, Jesus didn't come um, to die for good people, but he came to disturb our caked conventions by which we believe ourselves good. <laughs> when the gospel hits your life, all that, that, that facade that you have built around yourself to tell yourself and others, I'm actually a good person, when the gospel hits your life and you get honest about your flaws and your failures, it cracks all of that, and for the first time, you're able to be vulnerable and authentic in your relationship with God. And so failure has this way of cracking these caked conventions that we have about ourselves and exposes our shortcomings. And that's why we try so hard to cover it up. It's so natural for us to try and cover it up. And as I said earlier, it's also the reason why so many people don't come to church, why they don't want to be here because they know that being here means committing to a kind of life that they already know they're gonna fail at. And so they don't come because they understand more than some Christians that they're not good enough. They're not good enough to live the life that God calls them to. They're not good enough to walk away from the things that they struggle with. And so they would rather uh, stay out 
sight of that and not have all of that exposed and not be here this morning? What happens if I fail? What will God do if I fail, even as a Christian, again and again and again? What will God do if I break all of my promises to him and keep falling short? How many of you have made promises to God? Come on, just like, God, I promise you I will never, ever do this again. Like three days later, okay, God, I know I promised, but I wasn't serious back then. Now I'm serious, right? I've learned through this experience, and God, now I promise you that I will never, I'm a better person than I was three days ago. I will never do it again, God. And then like a day later, even quicker than the last time, you do it again, and you're like, oh, Jesus, help me. I, I promise you this time, God, I'm gonna do it. And I have had so, as a pastor, I've had so many people ask me, how many times can I break my promises to God before he rejects me? Before he says, no, 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 I'm not believing. As if God didn't know the first time, when you made that promise that you weren't gonna be faithful to it. He already knew that. But we think that God is surprised by our failure. We think that God doesn't know when we're gonna mess up. And that God would go, no, 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 I'm, I, you know, I've believed you too many times now. I, I'm not gonna put myself through this. God is literally going, I'm not gonna put myself through this again. No, no, you said that before. I heard you, you said it before. <laughs> this is what we think about God. And that, that's why, we, you know, we, we can't imagine this God that would just faithfully love sinners and flawed people like us with all of our flaws and imperfection. And so for many Christians and for many unbelievers, even failure becomes the F word, the unpardonable sin, the, 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 the thing that God c cannot accept. But what I wanna tell you this morning is that failure is not fatal to a God who is faithful. Failure is not fatal to a God who is faithful because he's faithful. He's faithful in every single season, even in our seasons of failure. And that's why I love the story of Peter so much. I feel like I can really identify with Peter because uh, like Peter, I often wear my heart on my sleeve and if I believe in something, I'm just gonna go out and do it. And I would, you know, I, I'm pretty committed and dedicated and I make big promises often and, and that's why I need Will to come in and say, hey, Adrian, maybe we should just tone that down a little bit and uh, maybe we should just think about what that would actually mean for your life. And, and so, and so I'm, I'm pretty much like Peter in many ways and, and, and Peter's like a young just pumped Christian. Have you ever met a young pumped Christian? Just like so excited and it's awesome. It's, it's part of the journey and it's what God has for us. But, but sometimes Christians can be like, I am, I'm never gonna do this and I'm never gonna fail and it's a, it's a clean slate and, and I'm gonna, it's a changed life and, and, and they haven't really experienced the failure like me as a five-year-old going, why is there yet at the end of the song? I don't understand what that means because I haven't had enough opportunities to fail yet. Um, and, th and this is what Peter's like. He's like this young pumped Christian promising undying devotion and sacrifice to his savior. Jesus, I'll go to prison with you. Jesus, I'll die for you. Jesus, nothing will be able to get me to deny you. I'm standing with you all the way. Heart and soul, Jesus, I'm with you, heart and soul. And, and, um, and he makes all of these promises. And then Jesus says this, and I love how Jesus is like, hey, Peter, thanks, man, but I already know that you're gonna fail. I already know that you're gonna mess, mess this up. If you've made a promise to God, he stands there going, yeah, yeah, okay, I, but I already know. Listen to what he says in Luke 22, verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, which was Peter's original name. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Satan has asked for Peter that he might sift you like wheat, take you out. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus goes, hey, I already know you're gonna fail, Peter. And don't worry, because I prayed for you. 
I prayed for you, the devil wants to take you out. I know the attack that's coming against your life. I know the failure that's gonna occur. I know the, the bad things that are gonna happen. I know the decisions that you are gonna make, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So when you have turned, when you've been restored, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny, me three, deny three times that you even know me. He's just made this incredible promise to God. And Jesus is like, well, before morning, you're already going to deny me, that you even know me. And so Peter doesn't wanna accept that he'll fail. That's why he goes, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm living for you, Jesus. I'll go to prison, I'll, I'll die for you. Jesus says, don't worry. I already know that you're gonna fail. I love the fact that God knows the ways in which I'm already gonna fail. And I love the fact that he's already made provision for my failure by his grace. I love the fact that he is already at that moment in my failure and he has already given me everything that I need and prayed for me and made provision. See, Jesus prayed for Peter's failure that in all the ways that he may fail, there's one, only one way that we can truly fail in Christianity. There's only one way that we can truly fail and that's when we fail to continue believing. That our, he says, I've prayed for you that when you fail, that your faith won't fail. You see, faith is not in ourselves. Faith is in Jesus. And so what, Peter is, what Jesus is saying to Peter is, I want you to know that when you fall short in your own human strength, that you can still trust in my faithfulness towards you. I want you to see that I will be faithful even when you are faithless. I want you to see that. And so I'm praying that you won't be lost because of your failure, but that you'll keep your eyes fixed on me. And Jesus says, I will not. And this is for someone here today. He says to Peter, I will not essentially allow the enemy to accomplish what he has desired to accomplish in your life. You see that there was a demand from Satan on Peter's life. I wanna take him out. I wanna sift him like wheat. And you might have felt in your life that there was a demand put by the enemy on your life to say, I wanna take this person out. But Jesus says, regardless of where that attack may take you, I will not allow the enemy to do that. I will not allow him to accomplish. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus is saying to Peter, don't put so much stock in your own faithfulness. Put your trust in me. Put your trust in Jesus. And when you have turned again, when you've come to understand again how faithful I am in spite of your faithlessness, then encourage others that have failed. Turn and strengthen your brothers. And so there's this clear uh, story that just represents so many of our lives and all the promises that we've made and all the ways that we failed and how God constantly brings us back to his own faithfulness. We ended last week in Romans 10, and in Romans 10, it, it mentions a prophecy where God speaks about Israel, and we've already seen how, how uh, uh, Paul writes about this and says that, that, that uh, even Elijah said, but look at all of Israel, they've all failed. The nation of Israel, is, is they're killing the prophets and they're rebelling against God, and we know that this was a big part of Israel, Israel's story. They weren't a perfect nation, even though they were called by God, and even though God made promises towards them, they often broke their promises to God. And so at the end of Romans 10, we see this, Romans 10, 21, Paul writes and it says, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. This just is a statement of how faithless, their, their, their faithlessness was, their disobedience 
was in not putting their faith in God. That's the context of disobedience in the New Testament. That's why being a very, very good person can be disobedience and faithlessness. Because you're trusting in your own self for righteousness rather than receiving the righteousness that comes from God, which we looked at last week in Romans 10 as well. Wanting to establish our own righteousness, we don't submit to that which comes from God. And so it can be faith, it's faithlessness when we don't trust in what Jesus has done for us. So God says, here I am, my hand is open, my grace is available, but they wanna do it by themselves. And so all day long, God says, all day long, I hold out my hand to a disobedient and a contrary people talking about Israel. That's how Romans 10 ends, and then we go straight into Romans 11, 1, which we just read, where Paul then asks the question, so then I ask, has God rejected his people? When God hold, holds out his hand towards us and we're constantly disobedient and contrary, does he then withdraw his hand at any time and say, right, you didn't do what I asked you to do, so now I reject you as a people? That's the question that, that Paul's asking. Remember, the, originally, the, this Bible wasn't written in chapters and verses. That was only added much later. This was just one continuous thought. All day long, I, ha- I hold up my hand to a disobedient and contrary people, so then I ask, has God rejected his people? And he gives the answer. He says, by no means. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. God has not rejected these people, even though, even though they have been contrary Has God rejected these people that failed to receive the gift of grace? And then he goes into this, and just to clarify, the reason why Paul then says, because I am an Israelite, and I am a descendant of Abraham naturally, and I have... Uh, I'm a part of the tribe of Benjamin. And what he's basically saying is is that if God had rejected all of Israel in terms of their salvation, in terms of um, them having the opportunity to receive Jesus as their Messiah and as their Savior, then Paul is essentially saying, then why am I here? Because I'm a part of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And look at how faithful God has been towards me. In other words, God is still allowing the people of Israel to make a decision to put their faith and trust in the person of Jesus. In other words, God does never reject outright. He keeps his hand open. While we live in this age, while we live in this world, while there still is time, there is an opportunity for every person to make that decision and to step into the grace of God. Paul's saying, why why would I know him today if God had rejected his life? My life is a testimony that God doesn't reject people in spite of their circumstances and that salvation is not on the basis of works. And that is our testimony. You see, we think that covering up our failures and pretending very hard to be very holy people is what is our testimony out into the world. And so we often think that pretending like we have it all together, and as a pastor, you can really feel the pressure of that sometimes. And I made a decision in my own life that I am not gonna crush myself under the weight of an unrealistic expectation and definition of what holiness really looks like. And so when I struggle or when I fail, I have absolutely no problem telling people that I struggle with this and I failed at that because it makes me more authentic because it's true. And then I know 
that having been authentic and in that moment having found that God was faithful to me in spite of my faithlessness, that somebody else who has failed would be encouraged to say, even when I fail, I'll keep my eyes fixed on Jesus because he is both the author and the finisher in the, of my faith and the good work that he has begun in me, he will not let go, but he will be faithful to complete. Yeah, it just set me free from so much because I didn't have to pretend anymore. Just this is who I am and this is who my God is. We're not here to point to ourselves here at church. We're here to point you to a faithful Jesus. I don't know if Jesus is there, but if he was, I'll, <laughs> I'm pointing to him right now. This is actually the testimony of our lives. The testimony of, of our lives isn't, hey, come out of the world so that you can be like me. The testimony is, look at me. I was worse than you. And look at what Jesus has done. That's why Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. If you think you're a sinner, I'm your chief. If this was a little tribe, I'd be making the orders. I was worse than all of you. And he says, I'll boast in my weakness. Because when I am weak, he is strong. That's the message of the gospel, not some facade that we put on, some, some holy uh, look that we try to produce. And that's our testimony to this world, that in spite of our shortcomings, God does not reject us. That's why Paul says at the end there in, in, in those six verses, in, in verse six, he says, because if it's by grace, then let it be of grace. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If we are telling people in this world that we are saved by grace, let's not try to pretend that we're saved because we were good enough for God to do it. Because by doing that, we just put people on the hamster wheel of religion where they think they now have to try and be good enough for God to accept them and it'll burn them out. It'll burn them out. There's nothing more tiring than trying to be religious, <laughs> trying to be good in your own strength. That's what the law is actually intended to do. It's intended to bring you to the end of yourself and bring your faith to Jesus. So if it's of grace, let it be of grace. God chooses to remain faithful to the nation of Israel and to hold a purpose and a destiny for them in Christ, even though they rejected the Messiah and in fact crucified him. They were the ones that shouted, crucify him. But God is able to work all of those things together for good. He chooses to remain faithful even when we don't deserve it. I think back to my own prayers and you know, I've spent my life praying and, and so often pray for whatever it is that I feel that I need in my life. And I remember for so many years of my prayers, praying and already resigning myself to the fact in my prayers that God cannot give me those prayers because I don't deserve them. Anybody ever felt that way? Like, oh, you know, I, I should have been better and if I had done better or if I'd been more faithful or if I'd spent more, I shouldn't have been praying only about this now, I should have been praying about this earlier. And so I already reject the grace of God because I feel like I need to do better in order for God to be faithful towards me. I remember preaching in youth when I was a youth pastor and standing in the corner and knowing that I only read my Bible like three times that week and going, Jesus, I don't deserve for you to work through me today. But, and I was like bargaining with God. I was like, how can I get God to use me? Because I really wanna see people's lives touched, but I know I don't really deserve for him to use me. And I always felt that like sense of guilt and, and condemnation, just living a legalistic Christian life. And I was standing there going, Jesus, um, I don't deserve this. I, I know you shouldn't be using me today and, and, and probably somebody else should be preaching. But, and then this was my bargaining chip because I know that God loves people. I was like, but God, because of the people, think of the people, you know, it's like, think of the, think of the children, you know, like, 
It's like, I know that I don't deserve it, God, but please, just because of the children, just, just use me today. Just this one time, I'll do better next week. Right? That's what we do. We bargain with God. God, I don't deserve your favor, but here's the truth. None of us have ever deserved his favor. That's why it's called unmerited favor, which is the definition of grace, which is what Paul is trying to express through this entire letter of Romans. Listen to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 13. Love this verse. I hope I put it up there. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because it's who he is. You see, God isn't faithful to you on the basis of who you are. He's faithful to you on the basis of who he is. And he cannot deny himself. It is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for him to be unfaithful. And so you've been wondering, is God going to be faithful to me in my life? Have I deserved it? The answer is no, you haven't deserved it. He's gonna be faithful simply because that's who he is. And that gives me confidence in my heart. That gives me faith in my walk because I know that God remains faithful even when I am faithless. This is the God that we serve and, and he has made promises and we see that uh, Paul alludes to this, that he made promises to Israel. And is he now gonna walk away from those promises that he made to Israel simply because Israel were disobedient and contrary? And what Paul is really showing us is that will God then be unfaithful to us when we are disobedient and contrary? He says, no, if God remains faithful to Israel, you can understand today that he chooses to remain faithful to you even when you don't deserve it. This is the God that we, that we believe in. We, we can stand on the promises of God because today we have a covenant with God that is based, a new covenant that is based on better promises, a fulfilled covenant in Jesus that all of these things are ours because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, not because we've earned them or deserved them. So we stand on the promises of God. We trust in them because of God's faithfulness. And this is exactly where Israel failed. They failed to believe in a God who would remain faithful in spite of their own flaws and imperfections. And that is why they began to put their faith in the law and they began to put their faith in what they could do as we saw in Romans 10 last week, that they wanted to establish their own righteousness. And we said that self-righteousness is the same thing as unrighteousness. In fact, it may be slightly worse. Jesus said of the Pharisees, if the light that is in them is darkness, how great is that darkness? How deceived are you if you think that the light that's in you is because of you? Our sufficiency is not of ourselves, it is of Christ. And so they rejected the, the righteousness that came from God. And what the scripture says is that therefore Israel stumbled over Jesus because Jesus came offering free grace and became to them a stumbling stone. And so they stumbled. But Paul asks the question here in Romans 11, did they stumble so that they would fall completely? In other words, would they be completely lost and rejected because they stumbled? And I so often think about how God 
uh, or how a parent or how I have walked with my own boys, especially when they were little. You'd walk with them and, you know, they're not such strong walkers yet at that time. And, uh, and you'd walk with them and they would often stumble. But even though they stumble, I'm holding their hands and I will not allow them to fall. And so even when we stumble, God holds us up by his own faithfulness. He doesn't let go of our hands when we stumble. He keeps holding on. And so, again, Paul asks the question, did Israel stumble so that they may fall? And what he says is that God actually was able to use the rebelliousness of Israel to take the gospel to all the non-Jews and non-Israelites in the world, including us. And so God goes, Israel stumbled. They didn't believe in the grace of God. They stumbled. But through that, God then used that opportunity to spread that message of grace to the Gentiles, to all the other nations of the world. That God is a God who is faithful not just to one nation, but to all people, every tribe, every tongue, every race, every nationality, he holds out that same grace. And all of the other Gentiles didn't even know about the law, and yet God saved them by grace. And what the scriptures say is, what Paul says is, what God was hoping to do through this was that Israel would go, look at what has happened. We rejected the Messiah. Now the rest of the world has received him. And by that, actually become jealous of the fact that they missed the opportunity to put their faith in Jesus and so doing, receive him again. And so there's this pattern and, and, and this grand narrative, this grand plan that God had to take the gospel for, from being for just one nation to being for all nations, for all of us today. That we can all be saved by grace. That Israel could literally look at other people. Have you ever done this? Have you ever judged people like this when good things happen to people that you think don't deserve them? <laughs> Has that ever happened where you watch somebody and you're like, how are they driving that car? Sure. <laughs> you know, like I knew that guy in high school. He did nothing. How is he... Successful, right? We, we often judge other people, and essentially, this is what Israel's doing right now. Israel's going, how are they becoming the, the, the oracles of God and expressing the word and you know, reaching? The, that was supposed to be our job. We were supposed to be the witnesses of God here on the earth, and now all of these Gentile, undeserving ragamuffins are out there doing our job. Now, Israel would totally judge that and go, hey, maybe we, should, maybe we should look into this. Maybe we missed the boat somewhere. This is what God's doing. He's showing that his, his faithfulness has always been on the basis of grace. How does he show Israel this? By being faithful to people who don't deserve it. So that Israel go, oh, we thought it only happened when you followed the law. But now these people are being saved as well. Does that make sense this morning? I'm dealing with a really difficult chapter and I'm trying to keep it up there where everybody can, can understand what, what it's saying. But in the end, the Jews will realize that they too are undeserving people just like the rest of the world and that salvation is God's grace by God's grace alone. And so it says that where these wild, this, there was this, this olive tree that was growing, which, which is uh, Abraham and the father of faith and the nation of Israel is the olive tree of faith, the, the nation that God used to bring the Messiah. It's, it's this powerful uh, plan that God had for, to bring salvation to the whole world. And now because of Israel stumbling, these olive branches have been cut off and we were essentially, how Paul describes it in Romans 11, wild olive branches that have been grafted in to Israel. We've been grafted into the original olive tree, even though we were just wild olives uh, growing out, and, and wild olive trees are nowhere near as majestic as the true, but we get to be grafted in by faith. 
Because that's the grace of God. He doesn't just pick what's perfect. And so Paul actually says to us as Christians, Gentile believers, hey guys, be humble about this. <laughs> Don't be arrogant about the fact that God has saved you. And that's a real effect of the gospel when you realize that you're saved because of the grace of God. I used to take myself so seriously. And you can ask Militia, she was in my youth from when I was 21 years old and was one of my leaders. And I can tell, like I would, people would be having fun like before worship, like the band's having fun. And I'd like walk in and I'd be like, I want focus. <laughs> we are leading people into the prison, stop messing around now, right? Take myself so seriously. <laughs> and I remember reading something by E. Stanley Jones where he said that um, there's two things that you would say the more mature you became as a Christian and, uh, and, and those two things are I'm sorry and I don't know. And I was like, I reject that, right? <laughs> I reject that notion, E. Stanley Jones. What do you know? <laughs> it's only a missionary to India for like 50 years. What do you know? And I realized that people who understand the grace of God take themselves less seriously while taking Jesus far more seriously. It, it allows you to just be and to not think that everything that's happening in your life is due to you. So Paul says, so be humble because you've just been grafted into this tree. It's by the grace of God alone that you're here. It's only by the finished work of the cross. Romans eleven twenty three. He then comes back to Israel and he says, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, in other words, if they submit to God's grace that's offered, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. So even Israel, if they return to putting their faith in Jesus, will be grafted in again. Verse 26, he says, and in this way, all Israel, the complete number of Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. In other words, the only way for anybody to be saved, whether it's Israel or any other nation, is by the grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Isn't it powerful? That even today, even though Israel, the nation, has rejected Jesus, the Savior, and crucified him and still continue to, to largely reject him. There's a hardening that's happened of their hearts. God has only done it so that the gospel can spread throughout the world. And then once again, he will give them, and they still have the opportunity to say, we put our faith in the Messiah. If you've missed the boat, in other words, God will bring the boat back around. He'll bring it back around. He'll give you more opportunities. He is the deliverer from Zion with this new covenant to take away sins. Verse 29 says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's a powerful verse. The gifts that God has given you in your life, the spiritual supernatural gifts, and the calling that he placed on your life, he will not take it away. I've been told by Christians that my gift or my calling was going to be removed. I've been told by pastors that if I didn't remain faithful in this way, that I would lose my calling or should walk away from my calling. And I remember just God speaking to me through Jeremiah 1 where Jeremiah goes, God, I'm young. I, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know if I can do this. And God says, before you were even formed in your mother's womb, I knew you and I consecrated you and I separated you 
as a prophet to the nations. And I realized that God was aware, just like Jesus was aware of Peter's failure, God was aware of every failure and every bit of flaw and every bit of imperfection that would ever exist in my life. And yet, before my birth, he still chose to call me. And so I just remain resolute. And this is what God has called me to, think what you will. But I'm not gonna walk away from it because the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. He remains faithful. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So this is, this is basically a three-verse summary of the entire chapter of Romans 11, all right? So if you wanted a three-verse, you're probably thinking, Adrian, why didn't you just read this then? Um, but, but from verse 30, he says, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So Israel was supposed to be obedient. They were disobedient. Then God turned to the people that were already disobedient and said, okay, I'm going to save you by grace. And then he turns back to the people that had now become disobedient and go, okay, you can be saved by grace. So you're guilty and you're guilty. I'll just save you all by my grace. That's what he says. Consigned all to disobedience, they may have mercy on all. These are the four steps of history. Number one, the Gentiles were disobedient to God. There was a long history of letting the nations go their own way while God focused on his redemptive work on Israel. Number two, then there was this, the decisive disobedience of Israel as she rejected her Messiah and stumbled over the stumbling stone. Number three, the disobedience led to mercy for the Gentiles as the gospel spread among the nations. In verse 31, we notice that this was actually a divine plan. They, Israel, have now been disobedient in order that by them mercy may be shown to the Gentiles. And then the fourth step is that Israel receives mercy because the mercy shown to the Gentiles, uh, God aimed to show mercy to both. Therefore, he consigned both to disobedience that he may have mercy on them all. And so what God really wants us to recognize is that whether you have got some sort of a claim in terms of your inheritance and your past and your, your family or the nation that you were born in, regardless of who you are, all of us have already failed. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God and he chooses to save us all by his grace in spite of that. And then we end off in Romans 11 verse 33 where what essentially happens is and this is really what happens when you understand the gospel for your life. It might just sound like a lot of talking right now, and, uh, and I'm just hoping, because I know that oftentimes you have to hear this message again and again and again before it actually just breaks open in your heart. And I know that was my journey, and it may be yours as well. But what happens when you really begin to understand that God has saved you because of his faithfulness, because of his grace, and not because of your goodness, when the gospel impacts your heart, you cannot help but worship him. That becomes the response of your life. Not just a song we sing on a Sunday, but everything about my life is orientated towards my Savior. It's the direction I face in when I wake up in the morning. It's the direction I walk in. I, I constantly hear His call. I'm constantly focused on His faithfulness. I'm constantly fixed on the person of Jesus. Like David said, I constantly see the Lord before me. What happens when you understand that you are faithless but God remains faithful, there's a softening of your heart that happens. 
religion and religious thought falls away and instead you become genuinely in love with Jesus. There's still many things that I'm imperfect in. There's still many ways that I fail. There's still many flaws that I have. But I can tell you that since God has revealed the gospel to me in the way that he has, I, can, I feel like these verses in, in Romans 11:33 are my heart. It's my response. It's my gratitude. It's, it's true worship, the kind of faith that only a revelation of God's grace can truly produce. The kind of worship sincere and authentic that only knowing what Jesus has done for us can produce. So in, Lo- in Romans 11 verse 33, it's like, and this basically concludes the argument that we started in Romans 2, which is the longest theological argument in all of scripture. And he comes to the end of Romans 11 and all he can do is burst out into worship. Have you ever had moments like that? We just realize how faithful God has been to you. And all you can do is just drop to your knees and just thank him and just begin to express his goodness. This is what happens Paul begins to cry out, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For, he has known the, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It's just like God is amazing. The story is incredible. It's overwhelming. It's beautiful. It's, it's so true. It's so life-altering. We just worship Him. You see, we, again, we, we worship out of a response. Worship is essentially a response to what God has done for us. That's what it is. If you're struggling to worship, just think about what Jesus has done for you. Our worship isn't based on our love for God. In fact, if you're deciding what to worship in your life, because we worship many different things, oftentimes we get tempted to worship other things. But a good question to ask yourself when you're deciding what to worship is not what do I love? Because what we love ranges from our family members to um, Steers' burgers. I mean, it just really can be anything. And And it also changes from time to time. A better question to ask yourself in terms of what will I worship with my life is what has proven to love me? Instead of worshiping what we love, why don't we worship what loves us? And nobody has proven that love more fully than God and his son, Jesus. So we respond. We're more committed than ever. Our faith is stronger than ever. We are more genuinely in love with Jesus than ever because we believe with all of our hearts that he is faithful. And we will continue to sing that song for the rest of eternity. And as you live, you realize that whatever you may go through, he's never failed us yet. Amen? He has never failed us yet. Our God is faithful. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's go ahead and, and pray together this morning.